but Osa, it's lovely to see you again. And it feels a little bit like a quiet time if there's such a thing uh, in cricket at all, but there is still stuff to talk about in the women's game. And I guess starting with the um, Sri Lanka Bangladesh series, which um, just finished recently, what did you make of, of that and what was your take? Yeah, pretty quiet, as you say. And I wonder if women's cricket in the future might want to look at this IPL window as a time to to get some bigger fixtures in, because I suppose there is a little bit of a break and a gap in the market for, for those who are looking to catch up on some women's sport. But I was happy to see that Sri Lanka and Bangladesh got a series in. And I guess pretty much as expected, Sri Lanka won both the ODI and the T20. And we kind of saw that strength matchup at the T20 World Cup. And you'd expect a Sri Lankan side to get one over Bangladesh. But surprising that Bangladesh won that first T20I. And it was thanks to the captain, Nigar Sultana, who scored. And this is quite interesting to me. She scored 75 or 51 balls at a strike rate of 147 as Bangladesh chased down 146 which brought me to a conversation about strike rates in women's cricket. We actually had this win discussing the Cricket South Africa Awards. And we were talking about kind of statistical matchups and how in women's T20 cricket, something like economy rates may not hold the same kind of weight as they do in men's cricket because generally bowlers are conceding at around four or five. And, and even six is starting to look like, oh, she's getting a bit expensive. And the same with strike rates, you know. So 147 is something we don't really see a lot in the women's game. We've seen 120s, 130s, and I guess Nats of a Brunt on a good day, you would know, is probably pushing a, a 140, 150. So to see some big hitting, I guess smaller boundaries help. And we did a, a kind of big piece on power hitting and uh, women kind of using ways to use the crease, whether it's using their feet a bit more, coming down the track, that sort of stuff. But I like that. I like that we're seeing a little bit of impetus, a little bit of oomph in the women's game. And how about you? Did you keep an eye on any of it? And I guess you saw that my bestie uh, Tamari was in the runs. It's so funny you mentioned her and we did not set this up. But yes, I did pay attention to it. And um, and yeah, as you say, it was really good to see some big hitting. And, and that's moved um, Nigar Sultana up the uh, T20i rankings, I believe. But also, um, Chamari Atapatu, your friend, she has moved up to ninth in the T20 rankings as well on the strength of her performance in that series. So, um, yeah, it, it you know, it's a series that, you know, we see that these bilateral series do have, you know, a strong influence in terms of, team rankings and and player rankings and and yeah like like you say it's sort of you know that it's a, a good time for these sort of series to be put in there you know for that reason really yeah I want to just talk about the two spinners as well because I guess the names that we speak about from a batting perspective especially with Sri Lanka and Bangladesh it's the players we know it's Chamari uh, Harshita who's scoring all the runs in Bangladesh's case Nigar Sultana but uh Fahima Khatun, the Bangladeshi leg spinner, I, I think she's quite interesting. She was really impressive at the World Cup. Not, I guess, young in, in terms of what we would consider young for a sports person. She's 30, but she finished as the joint second leading wicket taker. And I wonder if they can start to build something. You know, Bangladesh have got something massive to look forward to in that they're hosting next year's T20 World Cup. It'll be conditions that suit them. They've got just about a year and maybe two or three months to start preparing for it. We see that the ICC today has announced some of the pathway routes to that and there'll be some European teams playing Spain and France. And I mean, imagine Spain or France at a T20 World Cup. But I really think that Bangladesh can see this as an opportunity to set themselves a little bit apart from a couple of the other subcontinent teams like Sri Lanka and Pakistan. Of course, India have got all those resources in terms of financial clout. 
Bangladesh have got in their advantage massive population and also a very keen interest in, in young women playing cricket from everything that I've heard coming out of there. And I hope that a series like this, performances like they're seeing from names other than just the captain uh, may push them there. But speaking of who might come to the T20 World Cup, how about Thailand? So there's been other international cricket, the Southeast Asian Games, won by Thailand, who won all of their matches and ridiculously bowled out the Philippines for nine. Now that's crazy, right? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, there, there's a bit to unpack here. So yeah, there were some pretty low scores in that um in that tournament, which encompassed encompass sixes, T tens, T twenty, and fifty overs. Um, but yeah, there there were some interesting score lines. But yeah, it was really hard to look past that bowling Philippines out for um for nine in eleven point one overs. What took them so long? <laughs> what took them so long? And there were two runouts. So I don't understand. Like, what were they doing? Blocking for a long period of time and. Oh gosh! Imagine being bowled out for nine, though. It's it it must be pretty demor demoralizing. And the Philippines didn't do too well in the tournament as a whole. So I guess this is showing us something about the gulf in the associate team. Exactly. Yeah, it it really illustrates that gap, doesn't it? And then you mentioned sort of at the upper end of that gap and then another gap to go Thailand so um we were talking about Bangladesh and they were a story that I really enjoyed out of the T20 Women's World Cup it was they did some love lovely stories there we saw some talent we hadn't seen before some of their more experienced players you know did really well and then Thailand really the last time we saw them on the world stage was the 2020 T20 World Cup and again they were sort of that side that provided some lovely stories I mean they didn't win a match they got pretty compre comprehensively beaten in the three completed matches that they played but they, there were some great storylines and the spirit that they played in and and all of that was really interesting to see. And it got me sort of thinking, well, when, you know, when do we next see them? And that will basically be in the qualifying for the 2024 T20 World Cup that you just mentioned in Bangladesh. So, I mean, if they're at the top of that sort of Southeast Asian Games sort of echelon or group, then, um, you know, maybe they can sort of push for, for qualification again and, and sort of um, be there again like they were in Australia. And that would be really interesting to see. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you'd hope that they'd be among those teams. You know, th there's some other teams that I think could be pushing for that as well. Zimbabwe, they just missed out on the T20 World Cup this time around. They lost to Ireland by, I think it was six runs in their, in their final qualifying game, which was, I mean, that was really heartbreaking miss because the World Cup was just next door. And Namibia, I know the women's team have been pushing and playing quite a lot of cricket. The Ugandan women's team, the Rwandan women's team, who we saw at the Under-19 World Cup, they've got some incredible players. I do I think the challenge for a lot of these teams, and, and let's just be honest, we don't watch them, we don't see them a lot. We're tending to read scorecards and you know sneaking up on a stream if there is such a thing. But it's finding a little bit more than one or two big names. So Thailand, they call her Jeans. Uh, she's the top run scorer, and she seems to always be there and thereabouts. She's at the fair break tournament. She's the one kind of getting the headlines. But I guess I need to form a little bit of a core. And speaking of fair break and, and these associate teams, it was also quite interesting that the Indonesian team that they got together for a little bit of a, an exhibition match came out of some of the people that they'd met in Hong Kong, people who were working there as migrant workers, and they formed a team from that. And now that forms most of the Indonesian national women's team. So there's some interesting initiatives to, to improve the associate game. And I guess downtime like this allows us to look at things like that. But a big story, something we can't ignore, is who is going to coach India? So there's some names being thrown about. Have you heard anything? 
I haven't sort of heard anything on the grapevine, but um, yeah, obviously we're sort of looking at the other end of the spectrum now, one of the giants of of the game. And um, there was a story that came out um, just this week about Amal Muzumdar. Um, apparently he has applied um, for the job. So he's had a glittering first-class career uh, in India, was a contemporary of Tendulkar, Dravid, Ganguly, but didn't actually play for India. I think he was vice-captain of the under-19s Indian team, but didn't actually go to the next level. But, you know, he's sort of really highly regarded and he's one name that has been confirmed as having applied. But, yeah, I mean, they are in such an interesting period of, of their development now the India team obviously with as we've spoken about the women's IPL and and um you know really looking to sort of forge the game ahead for women in that country and and sort of who who is at the helm of the, the women's team will, will be a crucial next step yeah also really interesting that it's a, a men's coach that we're speaking about and I, I mean there seems to be a lot of drive and push to develop elite women's coaches who will then either coach women's teams and I guess that's you know that's too easy or will go on and coach in the men's setup like we've seen with Lisa Kitely who's done some work in the SA20 for the Paul Royals and I'm wondering about like you know are we reaching that point where we're going to see a bigger crossover of women's coaches in men's teams we've always seen men's coaches involved in women's teams but also you know, South Africa are a good example. Hilton Mareng, we've spoken about him before. He's been the coach for a decade. And, uh, you know, that's, that's great. He's done some incredible things. It doesn't look like he will continue. The conversation here is moving to whether Denisha Devnarine, who is a former player and coached the under-19 woman, and in fact is the only woman in South Africa with a level four coaching qualification. So, you know, that's a pretty great achievement. Whether she should take over although she's pretty inexperienced from elite coaching. Or someone who's applied is Salik Nakadin, who I don't think he'd be a, a very familiar name to our listeners, but he's head coach of Western Province at the moment. And uh, he's also had some work with the women's team. He's done some, some work in the assistant role. He's been around. He's a former player from the, the board era, which is when the players of color formed their own association and played during the apartheid times. So, you know, he would be someone who'd come into the consideration. And I think we're set for a really interesting discussion there is, you know, do we go with a Denisha who would understand maybe more of the nuances of, of playing cricket as a woman, or do we go with the experience? And I wonder if India are going to have similar type conversations. We've seen Julian Goswami involved in coaching as well. Uh, maybe Mitali Raj comes into the picture at some stage. Now we're just tossing names out there because we have uh, many, many things to ponder in this department. Yeah, I wonder if you've had a think about South Africa and, and you've seen so many of their players and they're all there with you in the in the English summer. Absolutely. So, yeah, speaking about the, the coaching side of things, I mean, South Africa are in such a state of flux with their playing personnel, aren't they? Because we've obviously seen... Um, Daneva Niekirk we've spoken about at length on on this section of the pod and but also um, Shabnam Ismail um, retired from international cricket recently I mean she's a, a big um, I, I would say loss to, to that team um, but it got me thinking about um, going out on a high and I suppose South Africa had reached the final of their home T20 World Cup um, if she was going to do it and wanted to go out in that sort of big moment then you know perhaps that helped make or not necessarily make the decision I mean it, it was probably something that she um, wanted to do and wanted to do now but I mean what a nice way I suppose to to go out is you know when when your team has done something pretty remarkable at home and you know is probably you know getting some some new players through now yeah, I mean, look, sad that that the South African public who, 
have only, I think, just gotten to know and love the women's team and where Shabnam's really become one of the superstars of that team, never really got to say goodbye because she didn't tell anyone that that final would be her last game. I was a little surprised that she retired. You know, age, I suppose, is one thing. She's 34 and she's been playing for more than half her life. So maybe that comes into it. But she really seemed to have a drive and a desire to mentor the next generation. She's done a lot of work with Nadine de Klerk, who took that amazing seven for breaking some records in the Rachel Hayhoe-Flint trophy. And then also with Tumi Sekukune, who's been contracted. And she, she's not really as quick as Shabnam, but... She's somebody who's seen as a player that could develop into a fast bowler of the future. So I did think she'd want to stick around in that role. Of course, her parents are getting older. Life is changing. And if we're honest, there are all these opportunities now. She can play in the WPL, the 100, the WBBL, fair break, various tournaments around the world and probably earn a lot more than she would on her South African deal. So women's cricket in this country is is going through a bit of a transition. Momentum, who are the title sponsors and were from the beginning of the professional era, they joined in 2013, will no longer be the title sponsors of the women's team. They're still going to plow some money into women's cricket in the country. But uh, I guess it's up to Cricket South Africa. To be fair, the men also don't have a sponsor. So, you know, they, they have a lot of work to do. But to go and find someone who can keep that momentum going, the SA20 dividends, if they pay out this year, they'll be something, but they won't be enough to sustain a two-tiered domestic men's structure. Cricket South Africa have now promised a pretty much professional domestic women's league, which should kick off from next season. I say pretty much because you know the salaries are not going to match that of the men's players. And then to, to keep a men's and a women's national team going along with under-19 setups. So, of course, the RAND this week plunged to a record low against the dollar. Uh, so there, there are definitely challenges here. And I think watching this very almost awkward transition because people saw the team reach the final and think, hey, hang on, maybe the next time they're going to win. I actually think the rebuilding they're going to go through is going to be quite difficult. It happens in teams. It happened in the men's team here. Uh, it's probably going to happen a bit in the England team now that uh, Kat Silverbrandt has said that it. Were you surprised? Yeah. Um, no, I was not surprised. Um and I guess it kind of has happened a little bit um, differently to Shabnam Ismail because, I mean, we just sort of mentioned her going out on a, on a high, so to speak, with, you know, her, her team having um, reached that final of a home global tournament. And, um, yeah, with Catherine Siver-Brunt, it, it's sort of she's almost just sort of very slowly and almost quietly, you know, gone into retirement. So there was a precursor to this with last summer when South Africa were over here and um, Catherine Siverbrunt um, retired from test before that series started with a test. So she'd already got a taste of test retirement. And I sort of I spoke to her about that a little bit. And, and I think she found that really hard. So when it came to not playing one day internationals anymore, rather than announcing that that wasn't going to happen, she just sort of quietly stopped playing them. And, and she said, you know, I thought, I thought and hoped it would then just become obvious because I didn't want to go through another feeling of retirement. And then uh, she sort of half jokingly, half just stated that she was sort of getting asked every interview now about when she's going to retire and, you know, what's left for her to achieve and that sort of thing. And, and um, she sort of wasn't real sure, but I think she just basically decided, look, um, I am going to have to actually say something rather than it just sort of be 
sort of suspected, asked, you know, um, constantly. So she did decide to make that announcement that she has retired from international cricket after an absolutely glittering 19-year career. I mean, quite remarkable. And it was was quite um, lovely what she said in, in as part of her, you know, um, announcement was that she said the greatest achievement was the happiness that she's found with Nat her wife, who remains in the team and um, and is now going to sort of have to um, play for England, with England, but without um, Catherine. So that will be, you know, something very, very different for, for her. And then um, they started to blood some new fast bowlers last year. So we saw in the, so certainly in the T20 format, which is where Catherine would have only really featured during the Ashes because she had retired from tests and wasn't playing one day as so. Um, they do have some young ones coming through, which they blooded before the Commonwealth Games. And that was, you know, the likes of Izzy Wong, um, Lauren Bell. She uh, made her debut alongside Wong in that test match um, against South Africa last summer. So they've been, you know, they've had a, a year now. And and also Freya Kemp, um, she had to then sort of stop and miss the World Cup with a, a back injury. So it's sort of waiting to see how she comes up. But they've got sort of three very young sort of seamers that they're, um, they're going to start or they have started developing with a view probably to the fact that Catherine was going to retire sooner rather than later. Yeah, you mentioned the test match against South Africa, which actually made me think that um, we're talking about test cricket in the women's game a little bit more these days. And I just wanted to mention that one of the things that was announced this week is that South Africa will be playing a second test match in, what is it, two years or three years when they play Australia next year. So they've got a four-day test planned for their tour down there. They'll play three T20, three ODIs as part of the the women's super league and then they will they will play this test match and i was thinking that you know it's great and of course we saw marizan cup really stand out in the the test match against england but south africa and and i'm sure a lot of other women's teams get basically no red ball cricket at all they don't play this at all it's not part of what they do they don't really play time cricket as we used to call it in the old club days but um here they are and, and it's it's sort of written as this amazing thing, written up as something that should pull crowds and fans. And I wonder if it's fair on them. I mean, you're about to go into a woman's ashes where there will be a test match and they do play a little bit more. Is that the fixture you look forward to? Or do you feel like, oh, that's sort of one thing, but really that the series is going to be decided on the white ball game? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I really look forward to the test. Um, one, because I guess they are still relatively rare but also the players talk a lot about really enjoying playing in them and wanting to play in them particularly the older players I got pulled up by someone when I mentioned that the players seem to have an enthusiasm for test saying well yeah but all the young ones don't they just you know want to play the t20 and and that sort of thing and and it's like well yes but I think the women want to play more tests because that is seen as a you know a pivotal test of you know cricketing ability and and you know a great contest so I think there is there is an appetite for both and it may be generational it may not be but you know I really look forward to it and you know this being a five-day test at Trent Bridge as well it's got um you know great crowds uh you know predicted um great enthusiasm for the series as a whole and I just think it'll be a really nice and interesting way to kick off the series and yes like in the multi-format system the the white ball is going to determine the winner but 
that's not to say, you know, by any means that the test, you know, won't be influential. I mean, there's points on offer there and you can you can bet that both both sides, you know, Australia, you know, the ultimate competitors and, and England who, you know, won't want to give a, a single edge to them. Um, you know, they're, they're both going to be, you know, really contesting that hard. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, and that's what we'll be talking about next, I guess. When we next come together, the Ashes will be right on our doorstep. I'm sure it's a very, very exciting period for you over there as the, the build-up starts. Of course, we're still waiting for England to announce the squad and waiting to see what happens in the in the domestic circuit there. If I had to ask you, uh, what's the thing you're most looking forward to over the next month or two with the Women's Ashes, what would you say? I, I think we, we've just spoken about it. I'm really looking forward to that test match um, up, up in Nottingham. I mean, I, I love Trent Bridge. I think it's brilliant that, you know, that they're playing there. It's over five days and it will just, I think, yeah, sure, different format, but it's really going to set the tone for the rest of the series. And I think that, you know, that's that's the intention and, and it'll just be really interesting to see how it plays out over that five days. And I can't wait. Hey, that's very exciting. I'm sure we'll catch up all our listeners with everything that's going on then. And we'll also have maybe a little bit more cricket to talk about the next time we chat. <laughs>